electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, big M&A and gaming to start the year. As you know, our first guest says the cloud is next. Reasons that sector may be ripe for consolidation. AMD gets this rare downgrade today. Uh, Wall Street thinks the run may be over. We'll talk about the Piper call. And then later, Netflix is tonight. Why investors are looking outside the U.S. for some clues on results, Dean. Meanwhile, Carl, the Nasdaq is roaring back up 2%. And we're going to put this historic drop to start the year in perspective. Uh, Remember, it finished in correction territory last night, down more than 10% from its record high, 8% just this month. That said, today the Nasdaq is having its best day of the year, John. uh, We are constantly monitoring the movements, but it's good to zoom out and put this in perspective. Always like to zoom out and put it in perspective. And that's where we're going to start this morning, uh, putting that uh, word correction into some context. And nobody does context when it comes to markets better than Mike Santoli, who's with us to break down the sell-off in software, how much investors should be worrying. Morning, Mike. Yeah, John. I mean, software was kind of first in in terms of this downturn starting in the earlier part of last year. And we'll see if it ends up being first out. Uh, Take a look at how uh, the software sector performed over the last year compared to other components of tech. That would be semiconductors and the communication services group. Of course, that is dominated by Meta, by Google uh, and I mean, uh, and by um, uh, by Netflix as well. Uh, So you see, obviously, software, it kind of, you know, it's eating the world. It almost ate the market in 2020 and 2021. That's your indigestion right there. Now, you see it curling right up. It's outperforming today. That's what you would expect being most stretched to the downside. The big question is, are we there yet in terms of some kind of uh, kind of rationalization of the valuations of software stocks relative to the overall market? Because that was the story. They went up every day, not because things were changing fundamentally, because people were willing to pay more for each dollar of future earnings. Take a look at this. This is the forward uh, price earnings multiple, the S&P software group relative to the S&P. So this is the premium of software to the S&P. And you've radically undone the 2021 surge uh, that you see there. But of course, we were in an uptrend in this measure for years before that. So it's hard to say that you're back to some kind of long-term norm. It's unclear if you have to get there as well. One final note on this. This is a sector, uh, this is an ETF that's dominated by the giants, by Microsoft, Adobe, into it. Uh, the, the real wreckage is elsewhere. If you look at the cloud uh, stuff, that stuff, there's a lot of mop-up work to do right there. A lot of those are down 50, 70 percent. So maybe a little bit of a different story if you're looking at what's happened to the price to sales multiples of some of those smaller names, guys. Uh, Mike, while you're giving context, can you tell me what is a correction, really? I, I know <laughs> that it's normally characterized by a drop of around 10 percent. But when you talk about an index 
correcting or the market correcting, sure. what is that supposed to mean? And does it mean the same thing in the context of indices that have been on a multi-year run so that a correction isn't, I mean, who knows what normal is? The reason, John, that a sharp setback after a long run higher is typically referred to as a correction is because the price has accelerated and deviated away from a longer term trend. So in a sense, it's the price kind of correcting back to what seems like its longer term tendency. Uh, so it's an overshoot that then gets undone. That's sort of the basis for the terminology. The 10 percent threshold is just sort of a vague rule of thumb that somehow turned into a formal definition. Uh, you know, we can use that. It's as good as any. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean the job is done or that you always need 10 percent to correct back. One final point is, and nobody uses it this way, but if something is way, way down below its trend and then it bounces hard in a sharp way, that's a correction, too, because that's kind of getting it back. Uh, to its trend. So usually it's about, you know, coming back from a point of excess. Mike, appreciate that. Uh, we're going to pay attention to this rally uh, midday here, that's for sure. Our Mike Santoli. Let's stick with software today. Our next guest says this drop-off in valuations could bring back some big tech M&A. There are now more than 40 SaaS companies below $30 billion, which she views as ripe targets for acquisition. Joining us this morning, Index Ventures partner Nina Ashad. And uh, Nina, it's great to have you back. Good morning. I guess the question is going to be how some of those with cash are going to balance relative bargains, I guess, versus regulatory risk. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. And yes, it's certainly been a rough couple of weeks and we're in what some people call correction territory for a lot of stocks and tech stocks have certainly taken a hit. But I think investors are really trying to balance the macro of what's going on in monetary policy with the micro of company fundamentals as we kick off into earnings season. And despite the sticker shock of what is happening with inflation and interest rates in the public markets, I have to tell you, we haven't seen that same correction in the private markets. VCs are pouring tons of money into startups at record valuations, even over these last couple of weeks. So it's interesting to see the disconnect there. Yeah. What, what leads you to cloud if we're looking for new, uh, new baskets where M&A might heat up? Well, I think you have to take a step back, right? The last two years, people really weren't only buying tech stocks because interest rates were low. People were buying tech stocks because they believe these companies are disrupting massive markets and also because SaaS is, quite frankly, one of the best business models you could invest in, even if you're starting to think more about profitability versus growth. For example, SaaS has high margins, you know, very low churn, great net dollar retention and predictable revenue. And so if you think about a lot of these stocks that have gotten punished, Zoom, Asana, Docsan, I mean, Zoom went from $100 billion market cap to 48 today. Mm -hmm. Asana is less than 12. DocuSign, 25, $26 billion market cap. These are all companies and products that are still delivering to their end customers. So I think you have to take a step back and ask yourself, are these companies still worth you know, investing in with this dip? And honestly, with this discount, it's almost like buying a Ferrari, same engine, same horsepower at a 50% off discount. Right, Nina, the public market seems to be valuing them in a much different way than the private markets at the moment. The names you mentioned have all gone public over the last few years. What do you tell your portfolio companies about going public uh, when they're getting oftentimes better valuations, better terms in the private markets? Is it making it less appealing to go public? How do you think about your exits? Well, I think the private valuations are very different, right? They're driven by simply a function of supply and demand. And as we saw last year, 
VCs in the U.S. raised $128 billion just in the U.S., right? And so a lot of these VCs, when they raise this money, they have to deploy this capital in a certain time period, two to three years, which means we can't sit on the sidelines and wait for the public companies to come back, you know, public markets to come back. And so if you meet a great entrepreneur who's building a multi-generational tech company, you really want to encourage them to think about long-term you know, not to think too much about what's going on in the public markets. And that's why a lot of the prices have gone up when you meet an entrepreneur that's that's building these companies like the Confluence or Datadogs or Snowflakes of the world that are all trading above their IPO. It's really hard to pass up that opportunity. That said, you know, I think we have seen a couple of companies decide, you know what, let's wait and see how the first rate hike is digested by the market. But I believe that the companies that are going to go out in 2022 with strong fundamentals, I think they still will. Nina, going back to what's already public, I've been thinking lately that terms like cloud, software as a service, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service probably aren't so useful to investors who are doing deep work anymore. For example, Snowflake, Datadog, Confluent. I mean, it's data management and sort of the deep involvement with that that's more important to them than SaaS. So I wonder what you think are the most interesting and perhaps overlooked areas, one that I'm thinking about is gaming. A lot of gaming is, you know, has become sort of software as a service over time, though it hasn't been thought of that way. And right now, as companies are moving away from video as a growth area, they seem to be moving into that and valuing it relatively highly. Right. Well, we're seeing innovation and the demand for innovation beyond SaaS in the public markets. And I have to tell you, in the past, the best in class companies would triple their revenue the first two years and then they would double their revenue from there. Today, we're seeing companies, again, in AI or data or even open source and gaming and e-commerce just have rocket ship-like growth. So some of the interesting companies we're seeing are really using AI to actually apply business applications. So for example, we invested in a company called DeepScribe, which is using AI to help doctors automate their note-taking. We've done an investment in Scale AI, which helps companies like autonomous vehicles do data labeling at scale. So I agree with you. I think that there is a lot more beyond just this bucket of cloud and SaaS. And I think we're going to see even more creative uh, business models and also bigger markets get disrupted as we've seen a lot of these private companies emerge over the last couple of years. Hey, finally, Nina, we've had some downgrades in the hardware space. We're going to talk about one uh, on AMD in a moment. Uh, Cisco was downgraded earlier in the week uh, by Goldman on the premise that maybe IT spending peaked in the middle of last year. Uh, Do worries about enterprise spending and hardware bleed over into cloud, or does that subscription revenue model make a big difference? Well, I think given what we've seen where, you know, remote work or hybrid work is here to stay, in addition to a lot of companies having to do a land grab to go to market where data decision, data driven decisions are very important. I think a lot of these companies have to look to software to solve those problems. So we really haven't seen a slowdown in demand and, and we don't anticipate a slowdown there. Nina, appreciate it very much. It would be interesting uh, if we can get past some of these initial hikes and see M&A heat up. That might make a new narrative for us. Uh, Thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you so much. In that vein, AMD was downgraded to neutral at Piper Sandler this morning, dropping their target price from $140 to $130, citing a slowdown in the PC market and growth headwinds from closing the Xilinx deal. The analyst behind that call, Harsh Kumar, joins us. Harsh, good morning to you. 
Is it backwards to be talking about PCs? I mean, AMD is talking metaverse, EVs, a lot of next generation technology and their results and investments are kind of showing where they're going. You're looking at sort of the PC market, which they are dominant in. But is it backwards looking? We are going to sort out Harsh's uh, audio. We're having some technical issues right there. But, John, it's a good question for you. We spoke to Lisa Sue just a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think, uh, and I don't know if we've got Harsh back. I suspect we might. I I think I heard him pop in. So, uh, Harsh, uh, that question from Deidre about uh, PCs perhaps being backward looking, how much of AMD's business is still dependent on that market, and how did that factor into your call? Yeah, it's, uh, it's so PCs are the biggest piece of the business for AMD, retail PCs in particular. So there are two categories of PCs that AMD competes in. One is enterprise, where they're rising, and it's a, it's, it's a much younger business. But the bulk of the PCs uh, that they do revenues in is retail PCs, and that's the part that we're concerned about. Look, the reality is a lot of folks upgraded their laptops at home during the pandemic, work from home, study from home, et cetera. And we think we saw some numbers in the fourth quarter where PC sales declined. And we think that could be one issue. The other issue is AMD, for example, is expected to grow 60% in 2021. They haven't reported December numbers. And that number is expected to be 24% growth in 2022. Here is an acquisition of Xilinx, which when closes, Xilinx is growing at about 10% uh, top line. So you're going to see the combined company slow down its growth rate quite a bit. And the issue becomes when you're in a market that is largely defensive, where there's a sort of, a, uh, you know, an, a, 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 a takeout for high valuation names, you get into a situation where a stock trading at 40 multiples uh, with possibly slowing, slowing revenues and possibly slowing EPS, that becomes a little bit of a problem for us. Right. So, Harsh, it sounds like part of this is a valuation call as well as so we've seen those shares run up over the past year. Would you downgrade some other names in the sector then, like NVIDIA and Marvell, which have higher uh, future price to earnings ratios than an AMD? We did downgrade NXPI this morning, and that is based on our belief that the orders in the chip space and within orders are running way above SAR, even when accounting for content. When we look at other names such as NVIDIA or Marvell, for example, we see extremely good fundamentals there relative to an AMD. We see much higher growth rates, for example, going forward. We also see very strong and dominant positions within the areas that they play in. With NVIDIA, for example, specifically, let me address one thing. Uh, They're about to get into Metaverse. Jensen spent a lot of time talking on the last earnings call about that. That will be a royalty-based model, which can do wonders for the growth and the operating margins of that of that company, NVIDIA. As for Marwell, they are just so strongly positioned in 5G, so strongly positioned in custom compute uh, and other areas like connectivity where, where things are rising. We feel really good about those businesses. With AMD, there's a couple of concerns. There's a concern of Intel catching up down the line. It's already been a year since the turnaround on Intel, and that will continue to happen. And you know, when you look out about a year ago, the competitive landscape could be different. The supply-demand challenges could be completely different. And you'll have a slower-growth company with a very high multiple at this point. And that was primarily the reason for us stepping away. Hey, Harsh, on NXP, um, you do talk about uh, supply normalizing in the second half of calendar 22. But some of us remember when the hope was that it would normalize in the second half of 21. Uh, we don't know what variants are coming down the road. How comfortable are you on that on that call, at least as as far as autos go? 
Let me give you an interesting anecdotal data point. So when you look at companies like the large semiconductor companies and, and consumer companies like Apple, AMD, Qualcomm, Broadcom, these are all fabulous guys at the leading edge of the, the nodes. In other words, the latest, greatest technology of manufacturing chips. Almost all of these companies are single-handedly beating their revenue estimates by $200 million, to call it a billion dollars for a company like Apple. They are raising guidance, um, but in the same uh, earnings call, and then coming back and beating the raised numbers. So supply has been getting better. It's just that demand is also getting you know, increasingly better over the period of last uh, two to three years as, as consumer spending has sort of moved and pivoted away from things like vacation and outings to areas like tech, for example. So the, the point uh, that we are making is that with leading edge catching up to supply, and we're starting to hear rumblings uh, off that with some of the companies calling for supply parity in the second half. By the end of the 2022 timeframe, we think the leading edge would have largely caught up and the bleeding edge, which is guys like NXP and other analog companies, they would be next in line. But it wouldn't take quite that long for the bleeding edge to catch up to supply because the requirements for equipment are much smaller compared to the leading edge. So once that happens, you start to get back in a normalized uh, semiconductor environment where the, the power shifts to the consumer rather than the, the chip companies. Order rates start to decline. Pricing starts to decline. We haven't seen pricing decline in four years, frankly. So I think all of that might be due at some point in time. Uh, this is really a longer term, second half type of a call. But given the market we're in, we thought it's prudent to step away at this point. Yeah, the fascinating dynamic could be playing out. Uh, Harsh Kumar, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Well, Meta is getting into NFTs. Is this next quarter more of a skid game for Netflix? And small tech is telling the teacher on big tech. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Time now for a gut check on a few payments names Morgan Stanley likes for 2022. PayPal, Visa, MasterCard. Take a look at PayPal first, down almost 30% since last January. Morgan Stanley slashing its price target from 265 to 217, forecasting slowing revenue growth and supply chain headwinds in the year ahead. 
But it is bullish on initiatives like Buy Now, Pay Later, and the firm's partnership with Amazon, rating the stock overweight. As for Visa and MasterCard, the legacy guys, they're projecting increased earnings if international tourism makes a full recovery, but warning that new COVID variants could derail those expectations. Also calling both of those stocks great inflation hedges as their revenue rises with higher prices. Carl. Meantime, guys, as everybody knows, Netflix earnings are tonight. International growth is going to be a big focus for investors. Our Julia Borson explains why. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, Netflix's future lies overseas. Subscriber growth is going to be key coming from overseas. Now, the company did forecast an overall rebound in total subscriber growth in the quarter, projecting the addition of eight and a half million new subscribers. And analysts are slightly less optimistic, projecting slightly fewer additions, 8.2 million. But they did forecast that the vast majority of those additions would be from international markets. Now, Netflix has been investing in this international growth following the global success of Squid Game. It announced just yesterday that it will release 25 Korean originals this year. Bank of America with a buy rating on the stock saying with a massive content slate and continued growth in Asia, we see opportunity for subscriber upside, saying its global content investment strengthens its value proposition. We'll also hear a focus on that content investment. Wells estimating that Netflix will spend $19 billion on content this year. That's up 13 percent from last year. Now, this focus on international comes as Netflix's growth in the U.S. and Canada stagnates. Now, last quarter, Netflix added just about 70,000 subscribers in the region, and it actually lost subscribers in the U.S. and Canada in the quarter before that. But it is raising prices in the U.S. It announced last week that it's going to be hiking prices between $1 and $2. So analysts will be looking for any guidance on how much that price hike could impact churn, where while overseas, the question is whether a recent price cut in India could drive signups. So taking a look at the stock, it is off about 26% from its 52-week high. It's down about 11% over the past 12 months. So going into earnings, though, 70% of analysts have a buy rating on the stock, about 20% have a hold, and less than 10% have a sell. So the key number I'm watching, guys, more important than subscribers last quarter, subscribers for Q1. Analysts are looking for the addition of 6.9 million new subs. Yeah. Uh, This morning, uh, Morgan Stanley, Julia, uh, looks at some of the uh, 3P streaming data, which has brought expectations down quite a bit. And they argue that if they do miss on subs with this kind of content slate that they've had, maybe they shift the conversation to, as you point out, pricing and margins over sub growth. And that would be a different way of thinking about the company. Yeah, look, Q4 was a huge one for content for Netflix. They had big movies like Red Notice. They had Don't Look Up. You know, those are both really star-studded movie star, you know, theatrical-type movies. So the question is, did that get people to sign on? And new content is always a driver. And then they have big series like Emily in Paris. Um, So we're going to have to see how much those big titles really drove both additions and minimized churn. And then looking ahead, there is a really big content slate in 2022, but maybe people are getting out and about more. Maybe they're taking a look at all the subscriptions they're paying for and want to want to narrow it down. We are seeing an increased expectation of churn among analysts as well. Just looking more broadly, John, at the whole streaming landscape. Yeah, it's uh, an important report for sure. I know you'll be all over it. And uh, let's talk more 
about it now. Joining us now to break down his expectations for the streamer, former head of content acquisition at Hulu, and founder of mobile gaming company Pop-In, Alex Kruglov. Alex, I, I want to back up. We just talked about the quarter itself. I want you to give us a more big-picture strategic perspective. It feels to me like we might have reached peak video recently and moving more into a gaming interactive investment environment when it comes to content. I mean, Meta is talking more about the metaverse than Facebook Watch. Netflix is leaning into games somewhat. Microsoft wants to buy uh, Activision Blizzard a year and a half after killing Mixer. Does that indicate, you know, from the broader perspective that uh, that Netflix is either in a bad position or maybe with Google getting out of originals, it's in a good position. Well, I don't think Google Google uh, and YouTube in particular being in originals was necessarily a direct competition to Netflix uh, uh, or made really a significant uh, dent when it comes to long-form uh, premium programming. But the landscape, as you described it, the, lang- the landscape of long-form, uh, especially serialized uh, dramas that Netflix has uh, uh, has popularized in such a dramatic fashion as far as uh, binge viewing uh, and the growth of the subscription SVOD landscape, uh, in my opinion, uh, it's, it's a mature industry. Uh, it's a competitive space and one where uh, both on the demand side, as far as how many consumers there are who are willing to subscribe for the first time, um, as well as on the supply side, uh, as far as where the creative energies and the creative talents uh, are, are going as far as uh, uh, making uh, high quality uh, entertainment. Both of those are going away uh, over the the next decade, away from uh, uh, long form entertainment. So today we've seen we've seen a consistent growth. Uh, the John Landgraf and FX has consistently reported as far as uh, original series. But my my analysis is that we're uh, in the fourth quarter of that uh, of that ecosystem. So Netflix is the leader. Uh, it's the leader worldwide. It's the leader in the U.S. But it's slowing down and it's kind of hitting an asymptotic equilibrium as far as where it's going to be, not unlike uh, where cable was, uh, premium cable was uh, uh, a decade ago. So is it, but is it, is it mature like premium cable or is it mature like search where Google, you know, search kind of matured in a way from a growth perspective, but Google was so dominant that it was able to branch off of that and continue to do very lucrative things and grow overall. Is Netflix in that sort of position or is it uh, in danger of being obsolete? That's the big question. So what Netflix has that is uh, that is incredibly uh, sticky is a number of paying subscribers where unlike the paying subscribers uh, for cable, those subscribers don't despise them. So uh, today's Netflix subscribers like them. They enjoy the experience uh, and the, 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 the churn is low because they're continuing to enjoy it on a month to month basis. The, the big question is at this uh, at this inflection point, will Netflix be able to expand its experiential offerings mm-hmm. uh, that it can provide to that subscriber potentially for more uh, for more uh, f- uh, for more money uh, or will it continue doing what it does so well? Um, and you alluded to the fact that Netflix has expanded in a small way and kind of putting its toe in the water uh, into the game uh, ecosystem, but just building up an alternative business that's gaming, that to me is not, uh, uh, is not the solution. The solution is to figure out how to take the user and hold their hand into a, uh, uh, into a future universe where entertainment and content is experiential. And Netflix doesn't have any experience in that landscape now. Arguably, there's an argument to be made that Xbox is actually much further ahead. 
Yeah, so Alex, this sort of leads into my question. What does Netflix look like in the future? More like a Disney leading leading into some of those experiences, merchandise, potentially a theme park? Or does it look more like a video game company with much of its business and that virtual experience? Well, virtual. What I think has to happen uh, is that the concept of uh, Disneyland, the concept of the theme park, uh, becomes uh, virtual and experiential and is consistent across the board uh, to any internet-connected device. And the question isn't whether this will happen. The question is, will Netflix be a major player in that, in that space? So the reason I say Netflix is a little bit behind uh, Xbox, but even at Disney, is because historically Netflix has been maniacally fo- focused on one thing, which is, uh, which is investing in great content, whether by acquiring or by making, and then making it available to consumers. What they have not invested in is franchise building. What they have not invested in is building worlds uh, and ecosystems around these characters that, and, and these worlds that they've built up, the Stranger Things world, the Squid, Squid Games world, and so on. And the question is, will they be able to do it before somebody else comes in. So the way that Ted Sarandos used to say that we want to become HBO before HBO becomes us, this next ring that they're going after, the question is, will somebody else come in and, and scoop uh, Netflix the way that Netflix has scooped HBO, or will they be able to be a dominant player there? Well, we'll see what kind of color we get on the call, not just on this quarter and the next, but uh, that runway that you're talking about, perhaps three and more years out. Alex, thank you. Thank you. And guys, the rally continues on the Nasdaq this morning, up 1.8%, trying to reverse what has been a historically bad January for the index. We've got the stocks to target on the way up. That's next. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's reset. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. We've got a guest coming up who claims the metaverse is, quote, obvious BS. And we're not talking about John. First, though, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Existing home sales posting a big surprise drop last month. Sales fell 4.6 percent, thanks in part to a record low number of homes for sale. Home price inflation is also on the rise. The median price rose nearly 16% over the last year to $358,000. Jobless claims also jumping with 286,000 in the latest week. Many economists, however, say that the recent surge is temporary and driven by the latest wave of COVID cases. American Airlines lost less money than expected last quarter, but the company says that Omicron has slowed its recovery and raised cost pressures. American stock fell as much as 3.5% this morning, is now up slightly on the day. 
And shares of Baker Hughes jumping more than 5%. That's despite an earnings miss. The company says that higher oil prices are driving demand for its drilling and oil field service equipment. Baker Hughes also sees rising energy demand this year and tight supplies of oil and natural gas. Carl, I'll send back to you. All right, Rahel, thanks. Got some key antitrust legislation on the Hill today with the support of a new coalition of smaller tech companies that are hoping to break up the giants. Our Elon Moy's got that story. Hi, Elon. Hi, Carwell. The Senate's tech antitrust bill has support from Democrats and from Republicans, but it also has won the endorsement of big tech's rivals like Spotify, Sonos, DuckDuckGo, and Roku. Now, some of these companies have already gone after the dominant platforms on their own through lawsuits and by working with regulators, but this is the first time we've seen them link arms. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar, the lead sponsor of the bill, said that's provided a counterweight to the massive lobbying effort by big tech. We are proud of their success. We all know here that they have a bunch of money, and that's fine. That's capitalism. But in America, we never rest on success. And one of the ways we do this is by figuring out what is working, what isn't working, how we fix it, so we rejuvenate our capitalist markets. But this debate doesn't fall neatly along party lines. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein is adamantly against this bill. Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy said he's worried about the impact on privacy and on small businesses that rely on the platform. And Republican Senator Mike Lee shared those concerns. It may actually entrench the very four companies at which it's aimed by creating a strong incentive to simply cease doing any business with third parties. This could crush thousands of small businesses, and it could actually worsen the state of competition. Now, it has been a robust debate so far, and we expect it to keep going. The committee originally had 107 amendments to work through, though that number is now in flux. Back to y'all. Wow. Uh, Elon, thank you. Now, it has been a painful week and month for Kathy Wood's ARC Innovation Index, down 5% since Monday, on pace for its fourth straight week in the red and currently having its worst month ever, down about 20%. A lot more tech check still ahead. Tech giants scrambling for social media dominance, the subject of today's thread. Starting off with some quote-unquote troubling news for TikTok. Reuters reporting its revenue only grew 70% year-over-year to $58 billion, despite the recent tech crackdown in China, where TikTok's parent is based. Uh, Meanwhile, their overall online ad sales growth fell about 2.5% year over year. Back stateside, uh, Instagram is taking a different approach to growth, launching an early test of creator subscriptions. That offering includes exclusive live streams and stories and subscriber badges on comments and messages. But only 10 power users have access to that today. Despite intense antitrust scrutiny over its Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions, parent company Meta is outperforming its social media peers by at least 40 percent over the past 12 months. D, um, TikTok, 
man, the, the growth <laughs> is interesting. Also interesting how they've managed to dodge a lot of the sort of regulatory, uh, you know, and scrutiny and, and even the content scrutiny that the likes of Meta have gotten. I wonder if that changes in 22. Right, but it's got to deal with Beijing scrutiny, right? And we know what they've been doing to their tech giants. We saw the founder have to sort of take a back seat. It's interesting. It's still one of the biggest private company in the world, valued last around $300 billion. Uh, likely to stay that way for some time as well, Carl, with all the scrutiny that the tech companies are under. Though we should note today, the K-Web Chinese ETF is up nearly 7%. So you're seeing some of these names bounce back. Still so much uncertainty, though, for that market and the likes of TikTok. And we, you know, talked about it, I know, this morning that what's going on, the sort of macroeconomic picture in China and the slowing ad market there, very relevant for this company. All that said, D, I think it was B of A yesterday said TikTok's time going from obscurity to national dominance is like nothing I can remember in the Internet, whether it's time spent, revenue, profitability, users, pretty much makes it the most successful social media company to ever step foot in the United States. I would love to get my hands on that S1 uh, or F1. We'll see, see if that comes. But it is such a remarkable story. And we are going to continue this conversation after the show. Josh Richards, he made $5 million on TikTok last year. One of the top influencers there. He joins me for a live stream in just under an hour. So tune into that. Send me your questions as well. That's at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Tech Check is back in just two. mentioned it a moment ago. Let's get a gut check on some Chinese tech. Uh, JD.com, Alibaba, Pinduoduo, and Tencent all rallying this morning after China's central bank cut some key lending rates. People's Bank of China cutting the one-year loan prime by 10 basis points, the five-year rate by five basis points. Chinese tech stocks also having a pretty good start to the year after a rough 2021, all in the green this year, and outperforming FANG. Uh, despite the regulatory pressures in China that did weigh on those stocks last year, streets still pretty bullish on some names. 88% of analysts have a buy, for example, on BABA, 92% with a buy on JD.com. We'll take a break here. Back in a moment. Turning now to Meta, the social media giant reportedly considering a dive into what else? The NFT space. And that is according to the Financial Times. The move would allow users to sell NFTs on Facebook and Instagram. But will that extend to the metaverse? Our next guest says he is, quote, calling BS on the virtual world, likening the hype to the communist propaganda he witnessed growing up in the Soviet Union. Joining us now, Evernote co-founder Phil Libin. Phil, it's great to have you. Uh, you can be skeptical as you are and call the metaverse dumb as you have, but um, it doesn't change the fact that it has entered the mainstream and the loudest players like Facebook or Meta are setting the narrative. What's wrong with that narrative? Uh, it's just so stupid. It kind of makes me sad. You know, there's so much actual, so many real problems in the world and so much opportunity to actually solve them and to see so much hype being uh, poured down this you know, weird dystopian sci-fi vision, which no one actually wants is, uh, I don't know, just kind of sad. It's lame. Uh, but yeah, you're totally right. It is it is part of the hype cycle right now. My prediction, though, is that a year from now, it's going to be pretty rare to see the word metaverse be used uh, unironically. Hmm. 
<laughs> we, we may already be at that point, Phil, uh, but it doesn't really, you know, under, underneath the hype, it doesn't really change that that is sort of where we are going the last two years amid the pandemic. More people are comfortable living digital lives, whether they want to or kind of have to because of the global circumstances. So what, what should we be thinking of as the metaverse? How can we parse through the hype? Well, I think, um, I think you're totally right. I think the metaverse, uh, the word is really squishy, right? It can mean, I guess, whatever people want it to mean. Right now, it's just a, kind of a little shorthand for sprinkling some, some hype on something to make it seem more interesting. If by metaverse, you mean the internet, you know, digital world, you know, Zoom, video games, uh, video communications, then yeah, of course, we've all been in the metaverse for, for years. And, and, and it's generally a good thing we are. Uh, if you mean a specific definition of kind of the way that 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 Meta talks about it, you know, a uh, persistent, interconnected 3D world, mostly experienced by wearing a big VR headset on your face where we live and go to meetings and shop like that definition, that's certainly not happening. It isn't going to happen because uh, it's dystopian and no one really wants it. Phil, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, I mean, <laughs> the viewers know I I've been saying uh pretty much what you're saying also for a while now. And you're not against certain uh, ideas that are getting sort of glommed into this metaverse <laughs> narrative. It's just the overall kind of hype marketing that uh, makes my stomach churn. But I wonder where you see the most potential. I, you've done work in video conferencing layered on top of that. Uh, you're, you're interested in the value of AR. I see some things happening with um, app loving, iron source, companies like that uh, kind of making mechanics uh, with digital economies work better, you know, unity, et cetera. Where, where do you see the most interesting investing areas? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I think we're living through a historical discontinuity. I think the world right now is the changiest that it's ever been, uh, triggered by COVID and triggered by all the changes that we have to make in response to it. You know, things that we used to think of as, as, as pretty much being set in stone for, you know, for decades are now are now malleable, are now open to change. You know, the ways that we do education and how we work and how we deliver healthcare and just about everything, like all of these things that used to be really resistant. And the, the, there's many creative ideas uh, coming out of it coming coming out of startups and out of big companies right now for that. Everything from yeah, augmented reality, which I think has a big future as soon as the hardware uh, is ready, just digital communication. We've really been thinking about this revolution as uh, we've been calling it the, the out of office world. The real change is that it's 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 out of office. Uh, when I say out of office, like I kind of wanted to sound like I'm saying out of jail, like in, in, in the before times, there was this massive thing that dominated almost every professional's life, which was the office. And now for almost everyone, that's, it's much less of a dominating force. You have many more opportunities to integrate your, your work and your life around this out-of-office experience. And of course, digital technologies are going to play a huge part of it. Uh, they already have, and there's so much more innovation to be done. And that's why it's just a little bit infuriating <laughs> and depressing to see so much <laughs> attention being paid to what's ultimately obviously just a gimmick of, you know, People floating around in cartoon universes without any legs and having meetings that way. Nobody wants that. That isn't a thing that's actually going to catch on. Uh, but the, a lot of the constituent pieces of what's going into the metaverse, well, yeah, of course, those are, those are totally legit and will continue to be developed. Well, Phil, why not just come out and say it? Why not just say that this was the creation of uh, the Facebook marketing office and that we all sort of adopted it passively because of the strength of their marketing muscle? 
Well, uh, you know, <laughs> Facebook invented it. I mean, it's uh, it comes it's directly lifted from you know from lots of sci-fi classics. Uh, you know, not surprisingly, all of them extreme dystopias. And so, for you know, for decades, nerds like me have been reading these like sci-fi classics and going, "Oh yeah, I mean, uh, we can build that." Even though you know, in the actual works, the worlds described are horrible places to live. We somehow kind of you know forget about that. So, this idea has been around for literally like forty years. Uh, it hasn't actually developed that much. It's just you know now there's there's a there's a, a a bigger tsunami of hype around it, and it attracts other hype. It attracts NFT well, hype and so all of that stuff. To let it. me let me play devil's advocate. Then you say that it hasn't developed all that much, but you know my nephews, for example, during the pandemic when they couldn't play with their friends in person, logged on to Fortnite or Roblox and could connect socially yeah. there. We also talked to yeah. a number of companies who are able to hire more diverse people from further flung places because 100%. of digital technology. So do you allow that there has been some important developments and there are some potentially really beneficial aspects of a metaverse, if you want to call it that? Well, I don't want to call it that. I agree <laughs> with all the other stuff. Uh, of course, like, hey, Legend of Zelda on the Nintendo Switch would, like, let me live through the first, like, six months of the pandemic. Like, obviously, all of us derive, derive many hundreds of hours, I don't know, thousands of hours of, of pleasure from playing video games. Most of them not with a VR headset onto my face, although a few minutes of that as well. And, of course, like, we've hired, my company's hired, I've hired more than 100 people without ever meeting him from, like, 20 different countries, very diverse, all over the world. That's not the metaverse. That's 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 working in a distributed way. That's <laughs> rebuilding the world in this distributed fashion. Yeah, that's the internet. <laughs> and uh, perhaps the internet economy. Phil, uh, thanks for your comments. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Phil Libin. Thank you. Well, I, I know you want to relive this past <laughs> hour. Doesn't every? Well, you can. Subscribe. Follow our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Yeah, Tech Check has a podcast. Look for it. We're back in a minute. Amazon has been pushing boundaries with physical stores for years. It owns Whole Foods. It's got the Amazon Go automatic checkout concept. First opened a bookstore in 2015. Of course, there's that hair salon in London. Now it says it's opening a clothing store called Amazon Style in Glendale, California. It's 30,000 square feet, so a much larger footprint. That's about the size of a typical TJ Maxx, because that's the ruler that we use for measuring stores. TJ Maxx's. It'll uh, operate more as a showroom. So imagine one shirt on display. You can then scan with your phone, send to a fitting room. Last year, Wells Fargo estimated Amazon surpassed Walmart as the number one apparel retailer in the U.S., and that's Amazon's apparel and footwear sales in the U.S. that grew to more than $41 billion. After a huge 2020 run, the stock's been basically flat for the last 12 months. No word on whether this shirt will be in stock. Uh, Carl, uh, you want to shop at, a, at an Amazon store or a TJ Maxx? <laughs> That's going to be a classic. Carl just Meanwhile, you got shirt. a great programming note. <laughs> That's right. Uh, before we go, Carl, tomorrow, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky, also its co-founder, will be with us live on Tech Check. You don't want to miss that. He's decided to live in Airbnbs, and Carl, he'll join us from one. Yeah, a great Twitter thread the last couple of days. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.